basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. OMP? Go. AFC? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. When we left the Gemini 7 crew on orbit, they were saying goodbye to their overnight visitors as the Gemini 6 crew of Wally Shira and Tom Stafford swiveled their spacecraft rearwards, jettisoned their equipment module, and burned their retro rockets to start their trip back to Earth. With the major event of the flight over, astronauts Jim Lovell and Frank Borman on board the Gemini 7 capsule started thinking seriously about coming home. Actually, they started seriously wishing they already were home. With the major excitement out of the way, the novelty of being in space, in a very small space in space, had definitely started to wear thin. At least they had finally been given permission to both get out of their spacesuits, so once Gemini 6A disappeared literally over the horizon, they immediately got comfortable and started taking stock of what was left to be done to finish their record-breaking flight. First of all, there were a series of anomalies that were actually starting to add up that needed to be looked at. It was clear that 14 days was not only approaching the limit of human endurance in space, it was also pushing the limits of the spacecraft itself. First of all, a pair of maneuvering thrusters had stopped working. It was later determined that they were actually a pair that had been made to an earlier design, which were not actually rated for the same duration as the new design was supposed to be. At any rate, the loss of the two thrusters was not catastrophic, because there were enough thrusters left to affect full three-axis attitude control, but it did make every maneuver a bit more of a chore. The second issue, which was um, a bit more challenging, was a fuel cell, which had been dodgy all flight and which appeared to be degrading over time. The cell had been flashing a warning light intermittently since the very first orbit. Uh, with the crew's help, the ground in St. Louis had been running an engineering model in parallel and had been able to keep it functioning. By day 12, though, the warning light was on more or less continuously, and there was genuine concern that the flight might have to be cut short, if only by a day. Now, Lovell and Borman were adamant, though, that having gone this far, they did not want anything to get in the way of going the distance, and so the ground continued to work the issue, and eventually concluded that the fuel cell would get them all the way to the finish line. On the final day, things went pretty much nominally. Although it has to be said that there was no problem uh, keeping the crew on the timeline, they were in their suits with everything packed and the capsule closed up for re-entry well in advance of when it was required. The crew did allow, as how they were anxious to spend as little time in the capsule as possible and were expecting to be picked up by helicopter rather than waiting to be hauled aboard the carrier in their spacecraft. Re-entry was basically flawless, and the crew once again proved that the Gemini spacecraft was capable of flying a precision re-entry trajectory, landing even closer to the carrier than Gemini 6A had. And in fact, they were aboard the carrier less than half an hour after having splashed down on what Jim Lovell called the good old aqua firma. 
In some ways, the most important results of Gemini 7 actually started to come in now. One of the very big questions that Gemini 7 was meant to answer was how extended exposure to weightlessness would affect the human body. As with many other things about those early days of spaceflight, we've forgotten just how big a question that was. This is largely because, as with many other questions Gemini was set up to answer, such as how to operate outside the spacecraft and how to do rendezvous and docking in space, we've just gotten used to having humans live in space for a lot longer than two weeks at a time. But in 1965, no human had ever been in space for anything close to two weeks. Remember, the previous record was a bit more than half that time, set by Gemini 5 back in August. So the medical community was on a pretty steep learning curve. For what it's worth, the Gemini 7 mission proved that the worst-case fears of the medical community were thankfully not realized. Both Lovell and Borman were clearly tired and weak, but they were far from debilitated. Both were able to get into the horse collar to be lifted aboard the helicopter, and both had walked out of the helicopter unassisted on the carrier deck. In fact, they seemed to have fared better than the Gemini 5 crew did. The chief flight surgeon, Dr. Charles Berry, was, in fact, jubilant over the results, which were really as good or better than the best that had been hoped for. Now, in the years since 1965, we've actually learned that at least some of the medical community's concerns about the effect of long-term long exposure to weightlessness were not at all overblown. Um, to some extent, Lovell, Borman, and the medical community were quite lucky that they both seemed to be able to handle those effects probably better than average, possibly quite a bit better especially given that the crew took almost no precautions against those effects. Really, in some ways, NASA just got lucky that their very small sample size just happened to be concentrated at the end of the tolerance spectrum. As I said, in the years since 1965, a good deal of medical research has gone into the effects of long-term spaceflight on the human body. Now, granted two weeks is at the short end of long-term, but we have learned in 60 years that it's long enough that a certain amount of care needs to be taken to avoid, avoid both short-term and long-term effects on the human body, even over that period of time. The effects of spaceflight on the human body are actually quite many and varied, probably much so, more so even than was appreciated in 1965. These effects include the effect of radiation to the effect of being confined in a relatively small space for a period, a long period of time, but of course the various effects of being weightless over a prolonged period of time as well. Now, the first two were not of significant concern for Gemini and Apollo, uh, mostly because it was felt at the time that even two weeks was not long enough for them to have a significant effect, although over time we have probably learned that there maybe should have been more concern, particularly over radiation exposure, which has been shown, in retrospect, to have potentially significant effects, even in low Earth orbit and even over relatively short periods of time. But in 1965, the main concern was the effect of weightlessness. Even the effects of weightlessness on the human body are quite varied, and their severity is also quite variable across subjects. The basic problem confronting the space medical community in the early 1960s was that they knew that since human physiology had evolved in a 1G world, it was dependent on gra gravity in a wide variety of ways, but most of those were not actually predictable. Uh, some potential issues were obvious, 
The first of these was clearly what the medical community calls proprioception. This is your basic ability to know what your body is doing. Your innate sort of sixth sense that allows you to do things uh, as basic as sit up straight, walk in a straight line, or even touch your nose with an outstretched finger. Proprioception obviously depends critically on your sense of balance, which is provided by your vestibular system. Uh, this system is focused on a small sensor in your inner ear that consists of a small ball in a shallow U-shaped channel. The location of the ball in the tube is essential for you to be able to tell uh, which way is up, effectively. Of course, the whole system is pre-tuned to assume that gravity is um, pointing down, holding the ball at the bottom of the tube. So take away the gravity and, well, what? This was a question that the medical science didn't know a whole lot about in 1965, uh, but they knew the results could be bad. But in addition to the vestibular system, basic proprioception actually depended on other, less obvious sensory input, because there is a whole part of your central nervous system consisting of neurons, uh, unsurprisingly called proprioceptors, which are responsible for telling your brain where the various parts of your body are in space. One of the key inputs to these neurons is the tension felt by your muscles. And of course, that whole system is also pre-calibrated to assume that there is a constant force of gravity pulling everything down. Remove that constant background force, and again, what? Well, even short bouts of weightlessness testing had assured scientists that astronauts would not completely lose control of their limbs in space, but the medical community really did not have a good feeling about how well astronauts moved when weightless compared to 1G. Were they still able to perform precision movements like those required to fly a spacecraft or manipulate small dials and buttons as precisely as they did on the ground? Furthermore, did those abilities degrade over time? By 1965, it was clear that there was no apparent degradation in astronaut abilities over a few orbits, but it wasn't clear what would happen over the course of a few weeks. By the way, one side effect of weightlessness on the vestibular system that had been established was uh, not strictly proprioception, but actually um, just the effect of weightlessness on, shall we say, uh, overall well-being. It was clear early that some individuals, when subjected to zero-g, experienced something akin to seasickness or motion sickness on Earth. Now officially labeled as space adaptation syndrome, this effectively stems from the brain's inability to reconcile the input coming from the inner ear with input received from other senses, particularly the eyes. Uh, when the ears and the eyes disagree, bad things start to happen, including, in some individuals, extreme nausea and, yes, vomiting, uh, which, of course, takes on a whole new um, um, dimension in zero-g. The effect of space adaptation syndrome varies widely across individuals. Some suffer almost no effects at all, while others suffer transitory effects that disappear over the course of hours or days. In extreme cases, it can result in almost complete debilitation for an extended period of time. In 1965, NASA flight surgeons still had a relatively small sample size to go on. Most of the U.S. astronauts that had flown had not reported well, at least not for the public record, very serious effects. But the flight surgeon community would have, by 1965, 
at least have heard rumors about the experience of Soviet cosmonaut German Titov, who had been virtually debilitated for virtually his entire flight. But while balance and movement may be the most obvious effects of weightlessness, they are by no means the only effects, and maybe not even the most serious ones. The other two principal effects of weightlessness basically boil down to effects on the body's fluids and effects on the body's bones and muscles. Uh, the first issue was probably obvious to scientists in the Gemini program. The second, at least the extent of the second, was probably not as clear as it would become over the next 60 years. To understand why the effect of zero-g on bodily fluids is so important, you only have to realize that the body's actually mostly fluids. Something like two-thirds to three-quarters of the body, depending on how you measure it, is made up of fluids. Human physiology has evolved over time to provide very finely tuned mechanisms for keeping the fluid where it's supposed to be in order for the body to function properly. All of these mechanisms have, of course, developed in the presence of gravity. So some or all of them might be acutely disturbed when gravity is removed. The effects of that disturbance and the speed with which the body would adapt to a weightless environment was very much an open question in 1965. Now, over the last 60 years, these effects have been characterized pretty extensively, including in individual, individuals who have literally spent months in weightlessness. Now, while there are some effects which are subtle, eh, though not unimportant, the most obvious effect is the immediate redistribution of fluids, particularly blood, throughout the body. Because we spend most of our time upright in a 1G environment, our physiology has developed a number of mechanisms to ensure that, in this condition, the upper parts of our bodies, including our brains, are supplied with enough blood. Now, these adaptations include simply having enough blood in our circulatory system that we can have a significant amount of it pool in our lower limbs and still have enough left over to supply our brain and the other constituents of our upper body, including heart and lungs and arms. There are also some other subtle mechanisms at work, though, the net effect of which is that our bodies tend to push blood to our upper bodies. When gravity is removed, these mechanisms, of course, keep acting, at least initially, and the result is that we suddenly have more fluid, including blood, in our upper bodies than we normally would. A lot of these effects are mostly nuisances, like facial edema, which is the effect that astronauts' faces look and feel sort of bloated in space. This edema can cause a certain amount of head congestion, similar to a bad cold as well. In addition, the edema can actually cause significant changes in an astronaut's sense of taste, including some crew members who found that foods that were some of their favorites on Earth were actually quite unappealing on orbit. Which is not a big deal if you're just going to space for a couple of days, but stocking the larder for an International Space Station stint of six months with your favorite treats, only to find out that they taste like sawdust, or worse, would really kind of suck. There are also some possible side effects that are more serious in the short term. The most serious of these is the effect in some individuals that the change in pressure in their brains, so-called intracranial pressure, can actually cause significant impairment in their vision. This is a phenomenon that's really only been studied in detail in the last decade or so, and scientists are still trying to understand exactly what's going on, how prevalent it actually is, and whether or not it gets better over time. 
Now, those are the immediate concerns caused by the change in bodily fluids under microgravity. But there is actually uh, a series of effects that occur over time, and which may not be obvious until the body is returned to 1G. In 1965, scientists were beginning to see, or at least sense, the nature of some of these issues. The basic point here is that even over a short period of time, the body actually starts to adapt to a microgravity environment. But when it returns to 1G, it has to adapt back again. Now, first of all, this takes time, and the temporary effects while it's adapting can be quite serious. Secondly, it isn't actually clear at all that the effects are all completely reversible. Now, the most obvious of these adaptations is loss of blood volume. The body is actually quite adept at noticing that there is excess blood running around in the upper body, and its first reaction is just to stop replacing blood cells at the same rate. And the net result is seen reasonably quickly, like within a day or so, and the body will reduce the actual amount of blood in circulation by as much as a quarter. Now, the first and most immediate effect of this, when gravity is returned, of course, is that there's not enough blood to ensure that the upper body, including the brain, gets the share that it needs when the astronaut stands up for the first time in 1G. Now, the effects can range from mild dizziness to increased heart rate to, in more serious cases, repeated loss of consciousness every time the subject stands or even sits up suddenly. This, of course, was why Charles Berry was so delighted when the Gemini 7 crew were able to leave the capsule and walk across the deck of the Wasp on their own power. Now, in addition to these effects that have been identified, but which were poorly understood at the time of Gemini 7, there's also a number of other effects caused by fluid redistribution and reduction uh, that results from weightlessness that were not really appreciated at the time, but which have come to be understood in more detail since. Probably the most important one, because it has long-term and potentially irreversible effects, is how the heart itself is affected by both the lack of gravity and the reduction of blood volume and microgravity. It turns out that, like any other muscle in the body, when the heart has to work less hard, it tends to atrophy. This atrophy actually sets in remarkably quickly, and it continues to get worse for quite a long time on orbit. And critically, some of the effects of this atrophy appear to be irreversible. All of which is to say that astronauts exposed to zero gravity can end up with weaker hearts, not only when they climb out of their spacecraft, but maybe even for a long time after that. Now, the second effect of weightlessness, which scientists in 1965 might have been able to predict or at least guess at, but which probably weren't top of mind for them, were the effects of weightlessness on the body's muscles and skeleton. Now, the first of these is, of course, muscle atrophy, the uh, same as with the heart. Some of the largest and most continuously used muscles in our bodies are the ones that hold us upright, and which we use to move ourselves around in our 1G world. And these are, of course, the muscles in our legs and our core and our lower back. In contrast to a day on Earth, in space, there is literally no work for these muscles to do in a normal day. There's no gravity to push against us to stay erect, and there's no need to use the legs in any significant way in order to move around. In fact, some astronauts would probably tell you that the legs mostly get in the way when you're moving around in orbit, at least in confined spaces. The effect of this sudden change from near constant use to little or no activity 
is that all of those large underused muscles begin to lose muscle mass, and they actually do it pretty quickly. The process actually starts within a day or two of being in space, in fact. Most astronauts lose up to 20% of their muscle mass in a week or two weeks. And again, the effect is not entirely reversible because the muscle mass that is lost tends to be the so-called slow-twitch endurance muscle, like the ones required to stand and maintain an erect posture for long periods of time. When muscle mass is regained after the astronaut comes back to the Earth, it tends to be fast-twitch reflex muscles, which are less useful for doing heavy work. But the final and maybe actually most serious long-term effect of even short durations of weightlessness is actually the effect on the human skeleton. And it turns out that in zero-g, with no real need for our skeletons to support our weight, our bodies actually start reabsorbing our large bones. This effect is known as space osteopenia, and it's akin to osteoporosis that affects humans on Earth as they age, except that the effect is much, much more rapid in space. In humans, typical bone loss is about 1% every three years. In space, it's about 1% per month. In other words, three months of microgravity in space ages your bones the equivalent of a decade on Earth. Once again, although this process is partially reversible once astronauts return to Earth, even that partial recovery can take a long time. And there are other complications, including an increase in kidney stone formation because of the amount of calcium that your body dissolves while on orbit. In short, there's an awful lot about zero-gravity environment that poses significant risks, both short and long-term, to astronaut health. And at the time of Gemini 7, uh, medical science was only scratching the surface of the problem. In the decades since 1965, a lot of work has not only gone into understanding the effects, but also on finding ways to mitigate them. Uh, these include special clothing, including those pants which you may have seen astronauts wearing, that provide some extra tension for the large muscles in the body to tense against, uh, which also makes the heart work a little harder to circulate blood. But it turns out that the single biggest thing that can be done is for astronauts to move. And by that, I don't mean floating around from place to place. Rather, they need to move their muscles against significant resistance vigorously. In other words, they need to exercise. In fact, every astronaut aboard the International Space Station actually exercises at least two hours a day. A number of different exercise machines have been tried, but it seems that the one that has been settled on is a sort of treadmill where the resistance is provided by, literally, bungee cords that tether the subject to the treadmill while they run. One thing that no one would ever consider doing now would be to send two astronauts to orbit in a spacecraft where they literally could not move around for two weeks at a time. In fact, if you wanted to bring out the worst possible physiological effects of weightlessness, you probably could not have designed a better way to do it than Gemini 7. But, of course, a lot of that learning was well into the future at the end of Gemini 7. And frankly, a lot of it was only possible, though, because of the job done, not only by Jim Lovell and Frank Borman in living through those two weeks, but also by the other Gemini astronauts, and also by Charles Barry and his flight surgeons, but also by the thousands of other engineers, technicians, and supporting staff that had actually been working to get Gemini off the ground, literally, 
for the last four years so that Lovell and Borman could spend two weeks in space. And to look back on it, at the end of 1965, it was just about exactly four years since Jim Chamberlain's plan for Project Gemini had been approved by NASA management, which was approved in late December of 1961. The project and the agency had learned a lot in those four years, uh, much of it the hard way, frankly. From a fast start, in which the program confidently predicted that it would be flying in late 1963, providing an almost seamless bridge to the Mercury program, it had been through some dark years, when it felt like the goal of getting to orbit was literally getting no closer at all every day. Well, because honestly it wasn't. Despite spending money at several times the rate that had originally been predicted. But the engineers and program managers of Gemini had kept faith not only with the original vision of the project, but also with themselves and each other, believing that the problem and the challenges they were facing could and would be solved and overcome. And ultimately they were. The booster issues had been overcome once the appropriate amount of attention had been paid to them, and in the process a lot had been learned about the science and engineering of large human-rated rockets. Similarly, the spacecraft's own rocket system, its orbital maneuvering thrusters, had also been poked and prodded until ways had been found to get them to actually exceed original expectations. And along the way, a lot had been learned about using rockets in the vacuum of space. Also, the science of electricity generation from fuel cells had been, well, if not invented, certainly matured to the point where it was actually fully practical for the first time. And along the way, a lot had been learned about the physics and chemistry of that seemingly simple process of getting water and energy from hydrogen and oxygen. These and a whole host of other smaller engineering and science problems had been discovered, characterized, studied, and ultimately solved over the course of the last four years. And in the process, Gemini's focus had undergone a subtle but very important shift. When the Gemini program first started, it had been firmly focused backwards, essentially, and the program was designed to extend the previous Mercury program. All of the original design decisions were less about doing something new and more about doing things better than Mercury had done before them. But over the course of four years, Gemini had truly put on the mantle of looking forward, of finding and defeating the challenges that the future of human spaceflight demanded be met, rather than by simply trying to do better than the last time. And this, I think, with the benefit of 60 years of hindsight, really is the reason why Gemini, expanded into such a much larger enterprise than it had originally expected to be. From the inside, at the time, this may very well have felt like a fairly standard case of requirements creep, where expectations shift incrementally every day, uh, every week, every month, and budgets and schedules creep with them. Until suddenly a program or project is spending much more and taking much longer than it was originally expected to. And yes, there was an element of that with Gemini, but I don't think that's actually the whole story. In Gemini's case, it really wasn't a case of creeping incrementally towards new goals. Instead, it was a process of realizing, maybe a bit incrementally at least at first, 
just how big, hairy, and audacious those goals actually were. In order to fulfill its state of objectives of testing rendezvous procedures, long-term spaceflight, working in space outside of a spacecraft, and controlled re-entry, Gemini had discovered that it couldn't actually think incrementally at all. These objectives, however close they might have felt at the end of Mercury, were not, in fact, close at all. It turns out that the Mercury program had literally been operating at the edge of human experience and engineering to accomplish the objectives that it did. In order to accomplish those goals, it had pushed a lot of unanswered questions off into the future, and Gemini had found that it needed to confront those problems directly. And that is partly because Gemini realized that its whole purpose was to discover those issues and find solutions to them and not push them into the future. Because Gemini, unlike Mercury before it and Apollo after it, did not have a single overriding purpose. I mean, Mercury was about getting an American into space and proving that they could be kept there and returned in a controlled fashion. And Apollo was about getting a human, albeit an American human, it must be said, but a human, to the moon and back, safely. Gemini, on the other hand, was about actually finding and defeating the challenges that stood between Mercury's objectives and Apollo's. In a very real sense, Gemini's mission was not to prove that human spaceflight was possible, it was instead to figure out why, with the current state of knowledge and engineering, human spaceflight, or at least aspects of human spaceflight, wasn't possible. And then to go and improve the state of that knowledge and engineering to make it possible. And over the course of its first four years, Project Gemini had actually been remarkably successful at doing that. And so, as the year turned from 1965 to 1966, NASA found itself halfway to the end of the decade in which it was committed to going to the moon, and Gemini found itself more than halfway complete. After having completed seven flights, Gemini was actually more than halfway through its flight program. In fact, after four years of operation, Project Gemini had less than a year left to run. Which is not to say that Gemini's challenges were all behind it by any stretch of the imagination. And we'll start talking more about the challenges Gemini had met and the ones it had yet to confront next time. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.